Well, I'm very pleased to welcome and introduce our three speakers this morning who will be sharing their thoughts and experiences on how love has shown up in their lives, surprisingly, perhaps unexpectedly, gracefully, while discovering something new. J.T. Halpert and his son Shepard have been members here at West for the last year and a half. J.T. serves on the West Building Committee. He teaches in the Sunday School, has participated in the Mindfulness Group, and has even helped lead a mindfulness workshop here in our continuing education program. Carol Clayton has been a West member since 2005. A second-generation Italian and youngest of four, she has two children of her own, Alexander, 37, and Adam, 18, and is an indentured servant to her two German shedders. Professionally, she has worked as a photographer for the past 40 years, and many of you may recall, and in fact, you can still see some of her work that she did for us last year to mark our monthly themes. Anthony Cruz is a theology student visiting with Wes this summer while on break from his master's program at Andover Newton Theological School in Massachusetts. Born in Puerto Rico and spending significant parts of his youth in St. Paul, Minnesota and Florida, Anthony has experienced and been involved with a number of churches and synagogues and non-theist organizations from Baptist, Pentecostal, Reformed Judaism, UU, and Humanist congregations. He returns to Massachusetts this fall to complete the final year of his master's program, after which he hopes to move to Chicago to pursue an advanced degree in theological studies. Please welcome JT, Carol, and Anthony. Thank you very much. So, I committed myself completely to my meditation practice uh, more than two years ago when I experienced one of the most painful afternoons of my life. It was around nine months after the end of my 15-year marriage. I was at this meetup, trying to be friends, feeling very lost, when I received a text. My ex said she wanted to introduce our son to her new boyfriend. And I felt like I was being held underwater. I was close to being overwhelmed with a lot of different kinds of pain at once, anger, fear, sadness. The only clear thought in my head was that I needed to get home and I needed to figure out some way to deal with this. Around this time, I had been, say, casually meditating for a few months, 10 minutes here and there. I felt comfortable with the basic principles and thought, well, it probably isn't going to make anything worse and I may not get into any trouble while I'm sitting there. So, once I got home, I sat on the floor and I committed to trying to be with this storm or whatever it was, this painful constellation of feelings. And the only thing I could use as an anchor, because I had lost my breath, were the physical sensations of the pain. Thoughts and stories would come up and I would get caught in them. Eventually I would wake up and I would come back to the physical sensation. So after about a half an hour, something happened that I think changed my life. I sat there and I discovered, crystal clear, that what I was feeling was loneliness. A deep, 
deep need to be seen. Underneath all the anger and sadness and regret was this intense loneliness. Almost instantaneously, in the same moment, I had this crystallizing thought. I was not alone. That which is aware, awareness itself, was not alone. There was awareness, and then there was this passing weather system. It was heavy and fitful, but it wasn't permanent or stable, and the thing about me that is unconditioned was not touched by it, completely unstained. The very next moment, another conviction arose. Everybody feels this way sometimes. It's trivial and obvious, but it was different in that moment. In particular, I realized my ex must feel this way sometimes. The only thing that would fit then was compassion. It overwhelmed any petty momentary story about what I was angry about. Just compassion for anybody who was feeling that way. I sat with it for a little while. I opened my eyes and I called my ex. I sincerely wished her the best and told her truthfully that I was happy for her. And the world where I was smaller and meaner than that and did anything else is not a place I want to live or a place I want to have my son live. So since then, I've more or less been addicted. Um, keeping up the practice, though, has been a challenge because uh, life. <laughs> but I was lucky enough to receive some advice from one of my teachers um, they told me that, as with anything else you want to master, you need to do three things. You need to do that thing every day. You need to surround yourself with people who do that thing. And occasionally, you need to take a break from all the other stuff you're doing and go do that thing exclusively. It's uh, great advice. So I sit every day, even if only for a few minutes. Um, I regularly meet with my sangha, my uh, meditation community. And each spring and fall, I attend a week-long meditation retreat. I usually just reference that I do these things, and I don't talk much about the experience because it's just hard to talk about. I mean, there are sort of Persian mystic poets who capture some of it. But whenever I try to talk about it, I just sound stoned out of my mind. <laughs> it's just like I never really saw the tree, man. <laughs> So I won't talk about overwhelming feelings of joy or stepping outside yourself. I'll just stick to the practicalities. The time at the retreat is held in what's called noble silence. So there's no talking. There's no eye contact. Everybody looks at their shoes. There's no journaling. There's no fast movement. There's no loud clothing. There's no phones or email. No devices, obviously. The idea is we create this safe container for our exploration and we remove all of our habitual distractions. Um, there are brief discussion breaks uh, a couple of times during the week, but all told you might talk for 30 minutes for, during the week, communicate at all. The days start early, around 5-ish. They end late, 10-ish. There's yoga twice a day to support your body and there are two guided meditations uh, during the day. Every day also ends with a Dharma talk, usually focused on the skillful means for dealing with what comes up, and some chanting as a group at the end. 
Every retreat I've been to is completely different than the last. The only thing in common is that at every moment during this time, the only thing you have to be concerned with are two questions. What is happening right now, truly, what's actually happening? Not what's a story, not, what you, what, not your preference, but what's actually happening. And can you be with it? And these are the two facets of the practice. Awareness, focus and concentration, and compassion, love and acceptance. Some of the days on retreat, they just pass by in a beautiful haze. Everything's wonderful. More often, they're raucous with emotions and stories and weather systems that are passing through. And it's all you can do to stay there and not get up and run out. Uh, I have come to value those days more, actually, because I find that if I can sort of have the fortitude to sit through and ride the wave, it will crest. It has always crested. When it crests, you will come down into this deep peace, joy, tranquility, calm. And every time you do that, every time you ride one of those cycles, you lay a groove a little bit deeper of peace, equanimity. And I love so much the opportunity to practice on the retreats and in daily life. I'm incredibly grateful that my life circumstance allows for it. It's not easy to take that time. Not everyone can do it. Uh, I love being able to treat my internal landscape as this, like, both deeply familiar and deeply unfamiliar place that I'm exploring and trying to understand, while at the same time trying to make a home in it. It's this endlessly fascinating, endlessly rewarding path that I'm very grateful to be able to try to walk. Thank you. Love was in short supply in my life in January of 2014. My 14-year-old son and I had an increasingly contentious relationship. And suddenly one day, driven by the hostility that existed between us, he was gone, gone to his father's. Suddenly what had been filled with parental duty was empty. Where there was noise, albeit yelling, there was silence. I went from full-time single parenting to no parenting at all. Barely a relationship left with my son. For two months I grieved. I wasn't ready to stop parenting yet. I wasn't ready to stop all of the things I did as a parent. I wasn't ready to leave the community of parents, which formed the core of my life. And the goodbye to my son seemed like forever. Spoiler alert, it was 10 days of silence and he's living with me again. <laughs> but then I was in pain. I was lost and directionless. I resembled a character from a Greek tragedy. But my garments really don't rend. They're very well made. And pulling your hair hurts. But there was a lot of weeping and a lot of cursing. I began to do intricate modern art thousand piece uh, puzzles. I was this close to adopting a lot of pets and becoming that lonely person. 
I hadn't had a partner since Adam. I had friends, but they were all inching towards retirement, and they were mostly inching towards their couch. I wasn't ready. I made two decisions. I would start online dating, which is a story for another day. <laughs> and most important, I would recover my pre-second child, carefree 45-year-old self and start climbing again. I had taken a three-part climbing course right before I discovered I was pregnant, and I had liked it. In one of those lovely coincidences that life serves up, through my work with the Wes's Burn the Mortgage campaign, one of the people I spoke to was Seth Taft Morales, a member of Wes, and also a climber who worked at a local climbing gym. I asked him, how I would go about getting back into climbing. To his credit, he kept an absolutely straight face <laughs> and recommended that I join a local climbing group that ran outdoor climbing from March until November. So in July of 2014, I screwed up my courage and with my old harness, new shoes, and no clues, went to Carter Rock on a Wednesday. I was scared. I imagined all the fit 30-year-old climbers scaling hard climbs and laughing to themselves at the old lady. And just as I was turning to leave, because nobody starts climbing when they're 60, that's ridiculous, two very encouraging young guys came up and said, are you here for the climb? And I said, yes and they got me on a rope, and I was off. Here I have to stress I knew really nothing about climbing. I didn't know the vocabulary. I didn't know how to do anything. But the climbing community in the District of Columbia is one of the most welcoming in the world, By I found out later. And they were nothing but encouraging to me. I climb with people in their 30s to their 70s, and this is one of the joys that climbing has brought me. I have an entire new group of friends. There is no age class. We all climb together. We watch out for each other. We trust each other with our lives quite literally. That sort of real life, life and death trust brings friendships and community. And while I went for the climbing, the side effect was the new friends I made. Deep friendships that I found it very hard to make in a life where I don't go to clubs, I don't go to school, and I didn't have a job. There are several kinds of, climb kinds of climbers, those who like climbing in the gym and those who like climbing outside. I'm in the latter group. I love the feel of rock in my hand. Climbing quiets my overactive brain. Everything slows to the next handhold, the next foot placement. It fills my need to solve puzzles. But what climbing is, is a puzzle you can solve in a number of different ways. There isn't one route. It depends on your skill, your height, your ape index, <laughs> and which way you feel like going. 
It is deeply meditative and extremely spiritual for me. The quiet, the peace, the deep appreciation for nature that was reignited in the hikes to and from the crag, the wind blowing softly when I'm sitting on top of a mountain. It creates a place for me where I am wholly engaged physically, mentally, and spiritually, deeply satisfied and often exultant. I feel connected to everything. There is no loneliness. When I look out across a vista that seems endless, I know that I am a small part of everything in sight. My fitness was iffy when I started, but practice makes perfect or at least better. My climbing has improved over the past three years. I'm still the slowest person to walk up steep verticals, but nobody cares. I climbed Mount Washington in New Hampshire in January of 2016 to the astonishment of me more than anyone. <laughs> I ice climb. New learning curves are hard for me to come by at my age, but this fills the bill. Climbing is a central part of my life now. I'm conscious that time is nipping at my heels, but here my friends in their 70s inspire the way forward. Focus on now. Focus on today. I have gone from feeling frequently lonely and isolated to always being a fair day and a text away from a couple of hours of local climbing or even better, camping and climbing for days with smart, energetic friends in West Virginia or New York or Pennsylvania. I went to the climber's holiest spot last fall, Yosemite, and camped and climbed for a week, climbing far above the valley floor with breathtaking beauty in all directions. And if you're sitting in your chair thinking, I can't do that, know that frequently that is my first thought at a new spot or a harder climb. I can't. Then I remember the value for me is moving through the I can't to the I'll give it a shot. And so far it turns out, I can. Good morning, Wes. Good morning. I was really surprised when our senior leader, Amanda Poppy, invited me to talk about love. I was like, love? <sighs> as, a th as a theology student who left his home to pursue a master's in theological studies, I was like, love? I have no family with me as I do my studies. I have a community. I live on campus, but no blood relatives whatsoever. So when she said, talk about love, I had to reflect, I had to pause. I had to look back really deep and say, how can I talk about love? Well, here I go. First of all, I wanna thank our senior leader, Amanda Poppy, and the broader West community for inviting me to spend my summer here with all of you. And a special thank you to the family who opened their home and is currently hosting me. To the family, and members who have treated me to lunch or dinner, and those who have been my tour guides in exploring DC. And as I've been exploring DC, 
I don't know if it's the water, the air, or the environment, but I'll talk really brief about politics. At least my background. I remember that throughout my life, many people have said or mentioned that I should consider myself lucky to have been born in Puerto Rico, specifically a U.S. colony. Given our current political realities, I can say that one of my privileges is being Boricua, a native of the island, and a U.S. citizen. Yes, I consider myself lucky in many regards, but also saddened because of our socioeconomic and political realities, historically up to current times, back home. Because we are a territory. These realities were the ones that pushed me to attend grad school here in the mainland. However, this is not the topic that I'm going to be addressing today. As Tony mentioned, there are things that I love to do. I love to talk about religious community development. I love to talk about Afro-Latino religious expressions, a newly found passion of mine, and interreligious cooperation. And to contextualize my talk, I will base it on the triangular theory of love, developed by psychologist Robert Stenberg, presented in 1985 at the psychology department of Yale. University. So, in context, I'm going to be talking about interpersonal relationships. Stenberg wrote that, quote, there are three components of love. According to the theory, there is intimacy component, a passion component, and a decision commitment component. Got it? Okay, keep it there. 85% of the population of Puerto Rico is Roman Catholic, with the remaining 15% divided among Protestants, Protestantism, Islam, and Judaism. These statistics are important to me because I transitioned from Catholicism, the religion I was born in, in a way being religious privilege, to Pentecostalism, and during my undergrad studies, I found myself in an amazing and vibrant Reformed Jewish community in the capital, San Juan, where I not only fell in love with Hebrew, the devotion of our members, who are mostly Jews by choice, who had made their way into this gem of a community. But also this community became part of my extended family, with whom I spent at least three years being an interpreter for the clergy members, and later on becoming an active lay leader. But this is not all. In that community, I met an amazing person, many, but one in particular, Jorge Kratzman, with whom I develop a unique bond, given that he's from Argentina, a rarity in Puerto Rico. He taught me to co-lead Jewish services, Friday nights, and to my surprise, took me to my first orchestra event. This is meaningful for me because it reflects how relationships in a community can develop potentially, 
and can also connect religious paradigms with a sociocultural manner. The reasons I share this personal story is because it was this Reformed Jewish community, a really inclusive, welcoming, and beloved community. I know, because I was one of those crazy members that hugged, kissed, and welcomed everyone that walked through the doors. A side note, it is said to be one of the most fast-growing synagogues in the Caribbean. It was this community that helped me find my way to humanism, ethical culture, and later Unitarian Universalism. My passion and commitment for, for these themes mentioned earlier, hope you kept it, pushed me to make a radical decision in my life, and that was to apply to Andover Newton Theological School in Boston, whose motto and ethos is radically open, deeply rooted, which extended to me, as at that point, I was an open humanist. And originally, the seminary is Baptist and UCC. I left home July 6, 2016, to venture into my new life. I had been accepted to theology school. To my surprise, I found a group of friends who adopted me and helped me survive my first summer as a starving graduate student. Now I'm learning to cook. <laughs> but for the first time ever, I felt uprooted, alone, and as popular culture says, a minority. I'm still searching for a community in the liberal progressive world. But one thing has been present in my life, and it is my love for seeing diverse and intercultural communities flourish. Because I had the opportunity in my lifetime to experience many philosophical and life stances, allowing me to relate and understand a few <clears throat> groups that I'm going to mention, conservative and liberal Baptists, Methodists, Muslims, and many other groups. Now I see beauty, commitment, and a search for good and a desire for transformation in religious communities, social justice rallies, and non-theist gatherings. My hope through my work is that I can help religious and non-theist organizations move from an individualist and silo mentality into practices that call people to really live up their values. My ministry, I hope, will be grounded not only on anti-racism, multicultural work, but intercultural relationships, on evocative love, a passion for radical inclusivity, and hopefully members that are involved in congregational life based on intimacy, passion, and commitment by cultivating relationships one person at a time, by welcoming their stories and their journeys as authentic ways of expressing who they are and what they can achieve by, by being loved and by being embraced by a committed community. My journey is still unfolding as I'm only 24, but as an Afro-Boricua, I am proud of my roots, my families, my failures and achievements. Out of love, 
I am called, I am called out for justice and will no longer be silent or fear, intimidated because of lack of words or sophisticated vocabulary. I am passionate and committed to live out my calling. And I finished by quoting one of my greatest teachers, my grandmother, who taught me and my family that values and principles began and are reinforced in the home. What is fueling your values and principles? Thank you.